It was a privilege this past week, uh, actually while I was in the busyness of trying to shop at Walmart and get groceries for our family, uh, to be able to listen back to back to sermons from Nathan Wolf and then Joe Wolf, his father, who were both so kind to fill the pulpit the two weeks while we were gone. And uh, we'll make sure to get those sermons posted this week on the Sermons tab on our church website. So if you didn't get a chance to hear them, I would encourage you to go listen to those, if for no other reason than just to be able to thank God for the faithfulness that he's shown uh, in passing down the faith through the Wolf family. And to me, that was just a really special thing to have father and son back to back. And it probably was really special to have Nathan leading the service and his father preaching I wish I could have been here to see it. <clears throat> Perhaps in a few more years, the Lord will allow, uh, will allow Joe and Nathan to sit under the preaching of one of his sons uh, as, as they faithfully proclaim God's word. That would be something, wouldn't it? That's the kind of thing we want to see. This morning, we return to 2 Samuel and to Absalom's unfolding sinister plot in 2 Samuel chapter 15. So why don't you go ahead and turn there. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, if you haven't read it, depicts the journey of a man named Christian who's really encumbered by this great burden that symbolizes his sin and his guilt that rests on his shoulders, and he's decided... He's willing to do whatever it takes to be able to be rid of this burden. And he's told by a man named Evangelist that he needs to head for a narrow gate off in the distance. And there, on the other side of that gate, he'll find freedom from his burdens. Well, as he approaches the gate, he is waylaid by a sly fox by the name of Worldly Wise Man who stands just outside the gate and intercepts Christian on his way through. And he asks him where he came from, and where he's headed, and for what purpose. And Christian explains that he's headed to the narrow gate, because he wants to be freed from his heavy burden. Worldly wise man shakes his head at the naivety of Christian, and he says, don't you know that the way through that narrow gate is through dangers and enemies? And hardship and affliction. Don't you know that you can be free from your burden without having to go through that treacherous gate? And Christian, not knowing any different, he says, well, tell me where. And he points him to the city called Morality. Where there lives a man named Legality and his beautiful son, Civility. And he says, these two men will help you unburden yourself from your great guilt. And they'll do it so easily and at such little cost to you. Bunyan's story is an allegorical rendering of the truth of Genesis 4-7. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Let's see if we can get this uh, We're just going to make do with the crackle then. Ah, yes. 
go. I could tell it was bugging several of you and it was bothering me, but I was going to push through. All right. So the, the truth of Genesis 4-7, sin crouching at the door, that's what John Bunyan is depicting there. There is an enemy at the gates. An enemy who would turn you away from entering into the city of God. There's an enemy at the gate who would prevent you from finding the wholeness at the cross that lies through that gate. There's an enemy at the gates who would turn you aside from making Jesus the king in your heart. Because he would be your king instead. This enemy is patient. He is proud. He's a thief. He goes by various names. You may call him the worldly wise man. You may call him Absalom this morning. But the enemy at the gates ultimately is not really an enemy without. It's an enemy within. If you found 2 Samuel 15, let's stand together as we begin reading in verse 1. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. Whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. When Absalom went, with Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from the city of Gilo, and the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. You may be seated. you've been with us for the past several weeks, we've watched Absalom as he has continued to brood year after year. But here in 2 Samuel 15, Absalom finally makes his move. Absalom, the disarmingly beautiful son of David, 
The man, we're told, who was the most handsome by far of all the men in Israel. He turns out to be the enemy at the gates. And nobody seems to realize it until it's too late. Three things characterize Absalom in this passage. His patience, his pride, and his theft. As we survey Absalom in this story and we think about him and we try to envision him in our mind, we need to realize that Absalom is a picture of the sinful man, the sinful woman who crouches at the gates of each and every one of our own hearts. First this morning we see, number one, the patience of Absalom. And normally we think of patience as a good thing, right? Patience is a virtue, they say. Which is what makes Absalom all the more of a dangerous enemy because we see here him demonstrating he is calm, he's collected, he's patient, he's intentional, biding his time, waiting for the right moment. This is the man who back in chapter 13, after the humiliation of his own sister, Tamar, did and said nothing for two whole years. The patience of Absalom. For two years waited for the right opportunity to get revenge on his brother Amnon for the unspeakable act he committed against their sister. This is the man who endured three years of exile with his grandparents in Geshur. The patience of Absalom. This is the man who patiently abided the humiliation of returning to Jerusalem only to be put under house arrest for two more years. And here we see in verse 7 that Absalom put in another four patient years before making his move. And did you see what patient diligence Absalom goes about his work there in verse 2? Look at it with me. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. So he's getting up every morning bright and early before anyone is out of bed so that he can greet every person coming into the city. Standing by the gate all day, patiently, diligently, daily working to win the people one man, one woman at a time. This is a takeover nine years in the making, a quiet, patient work. Ernest Hemingway once said, how do you go bankrupt? Two ways, gradually, then suddenly. We often imagine sin as being this sudden impulse and immediate temptation, but there is patience through the plot of the enemy. Luke 4.13 4, tells us when the devil had, entered, had ended every temptation of Jesus, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. That's patience. Waiting. Satan studies his victims. He learns their weaknesses. He ponders them patiently. He waits for the opportune time. We see signs of Absalom's patience all over 
This plot, nothing about what Absalom does or says seems hasty or unthought of. He is methodical. His step, every step is purposeful. His complaint to each and every man and woman as they enter the city is a veiled criticism. When he says, oh, I wish you could get justice in this city, but there isn't going to be any justice for you in here. That's a veiled criticism of something that happened years before. The justice he failed to give to his own sister Tamar that the King David did. His deception in verse 7 has three prongs to it. It's a three-pronged barb. Look at it with me. Verse 7. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Gesher in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. Barb number one, Absalom is deceiving David with a trick that David himself used against King Saul. That's barb number one. Barb number two, Absalom's vow just happens to touch a very sore spot between him and his father. He just so happens to mention the forced exile of three years where David acted like he didn't have a son named Absalom when he had to live with his grandparents. And then barb number three, Absalom is planning to launch his revolution at Hebron, the very place where David's kingdom began. This is poetic justice. This is Absalom in all of his patience. He will rob his father of the kingdom at the very place where his kingdom began. How do you go spiritually bankrupt? Two ways. Gradually. And then suddenly. The enemy is patient. Adultery doesn't happen suddenly. It happens patiently. It could be nine years in the making. Little weaknesses here and there. A look. A little temptation. That is until it happens all of a sudden. Corporate fraud doesn't happen suddenly. It happens patiently. It might even start back in school with a little bit of dishonesty about how much reading you completed for a course, a little plagiarism here, a few lies on a college application. Satan plots our downfall with the patience of Absalom. His revolt is the result of years of plotting, seething anger, seeking to make sure that when he lands his blow, it will be lethal. When the opportune time comes, your downfall will be just as tailor-made. The patience of the enemy. Secondly, we must spend a few minutes looking at the pride of Absalom. There's a reason why verse 1 is what opens the story this morning. Look at it with me again. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses, 50 men to run before, and 50 men to run before him. And even without my help, you can probably figure out what he's angling at here, gathering this entourage and 
getting a chariot for himself. What kind of a man rides a chariot with an entourage of horses? What sort of character has 50 footmen that are running before him? If in case we have any doubts, we could turn to 1 Kings chapter 1, where his brother makes the same gesture. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. So in case you are wondering what this gesture is all about, what is inside of Absalom's heart, I would be king. This is the pride of Absalom. And then we find this man standing at the king's gate and telling every passerby from among the king's people that he would do a better job than the king. Verse 3. Absalom would say to each one of these men, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Ah! That I were judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And then we find this man who would be king inviting the people of Israel to bow down before him. Verse 5. And whenever a man came near to pay homage, that is, they are bowing their faces down to the ground before him, he would put out his hands and take hold of him and kiss him. Absalom was David's second son. The first one's dead. Absalom killed him. He's the heir apparent. And like the prodigal son, he's not willing to wait for his father's death in order to get his inheritance. I want to be king now. Give me what's coming to me. Verse 10. But Absalom sent secret, secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then shout it to the rafters, Absalom is king at Hebron. What is it in Absalom's heart that causes him and drives him to make this kind of a move? Well, it's what Thomas Aquinas describes as inordinate self-love. That is... Pride. Pride. Aquinas writes that the root of pride is a lack of submission to God, and therefore you could think of pride as being the root of all sin. The sin of pride. Absalom is not merely rebelling against his earthly father and overthrowing King David. He is rebelling against his heavenly father. In verse 12, we find Absalom coordinating his revolution from the back pew of the church during the service. Look at it. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, while that's taking place, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo, and the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept on increasing. His sacrifices his religion, his church attendance, his giving, his offerings are all a cover, a smokescreen, a distraction. All just an effort to dethrone every power, including God himself, 
because I want to be king. Karen Swallow Pryor writes in her book on reading well, the paradox of humility is that through it, we are exalted. And the paradox of pride is that through it, we fall. This morning in 2 Samuel 15, we are seeing the meteoric rise of Absalom in his pride. This is also the beginning of David's humiliation. Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The pride of Absalom says, I could do better. I am just. I am right always. I, I never sin. I'm always righteous. My dad doesn't know best. My mom doesn't know best. My teacher doesn't know. My mom, my pastor, my boss, my friends, not even God. In fact, I deserve to be king. Absalom is certain that if he were in his father's shoes, he would be better. He wouldn't have failed to bring about justice for his sister. He would never have banished his own son and treated him like a family pariah given the chance. He would never be like his father, never. We'll see that those will become famous last words. Brothers and sisters, to believe in what we call original sin is to believe that the pride we see on this page, pent up in the heart of Absalom, is the very same pride that dwells outside the gates of our own hearts. We all want to steal away to Hebron and make ourselves king. And the only way to be rid of self-exalting pride like Absalom's is to walk in the footsteps of David that we will see over the next couple of weeks. It's a road that leads through the Mount of Olives. It's a road that Jesus himself walked. It's one that says, not my will, but yours be done. It's a road of suffering. Humility is not gained. Victory over pride in our life does not happen without humiliation, without being humbled. This is why Jesus' invitation to his followers was this. Take up your cross and follow me. But in his patience and his pride, there was a goal. There was something that Absalom was seeking to attain. There was a trophy that his pride demanded. And thirdly, we see the theft of Absalom. Verse 1 begins with two words that we probably are, have just trained ourselves to skip over. Look at them with me. It says, after this. Now those are connecting words. They're meant to join together what just happened in chapter 14 with what follows in chapter 15. The question is, what is the this? And the good thing for us is we only have to look in the verse before. After what? After the king kissed Absalom. So heading into chapter 15, what does David think has happened between himself and his son? The relationship is healed, right? They, they've kissed, they've made up. King David believes his son is back into the fold. He doesn't realize 
and he's kissed his betrayer. And as each man passes through the gate, Absalom is planting the seeds of revolution by doing what? Look at verse 5. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Kiss him. The kingdom betrayed by a kiss. With affection, false sympathy, false love, false brotherhood, Absalom manages to commit the ultimate theft in verse 6. Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment, so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. The theft of Absalom, Absalom stole their hearts. The people were robbed blind. On the day of Absalom's revolt, they were looking around and wondering, what on earth is going on here? They had no idea what was happening around them. Sometime when they were too busy attending to their own urgent matters, seeking their own purposes, quietly in the darkness, their hearts were stolen. Brothers and sisters, the same conspiracy is afoot even this day. The swindling of hearts in the darkness the powers of darkness don't care about money or possessions or even politics because those things all come and go. The powers of darkness care about what is eternal. They want our hearts. They care about human souls. So while we're out playing politics and fighting tooth and claw for money or success or grades or toys or homes or likes on Instagram, we're engaged in things that are not eternal. Meanwhile, our hearts have been robbed from us. And we didn't even know it. Because it's in here, ultimately, that the king of the universe will reign. Not on thrones made of gold or silver, but on the throne of human hearts all the people, David himself, taken in by the kiss of the betrayer. There is one man who's walked this earth who was not swindled, whose heart was never stolen by the betrayer's kiss. John 10 tells us that Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Why do you think it is that in the Gospels, Jesus repeatedly tells his disciples beforehand that one of them will betray him? It's so that we will recognize that he knows he's walking a path that David walked before him, but he knows that he's walking it. David may have been swindled, but Jesus Christ was not. As they were eating, he said, Truly I said to say to you, one of you will betray me. Luke 22, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and a man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. And he drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man? And a kiss. 
What took place with Absalom in chapter 15 of 2 Samuel is the patient, proud work that Satan has been about since Genesis chapter 3. The theft of human hearts because the highest throne in all of heaven and earth is the human heart. That's where he wants to rule. That's what he wants to own. I wonder this morning who is enthroned in your heart. Satan comes to us so charming, so beautiful, so deceitful, saying words that we long to hear. You're right, you know. Everyone else doesn't recognize how good and right you are, but I do. You deserve better. God is holding out on you. You go through that gate, you're not going to get what you think from him. Turn aside to me, and I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. I'll make you king. We know that's what you want. Jesus Christ, the son of David, patiently walked the path of 2 Samuel 15 and 16 and 17 footsteps of his father David that lead out of Jerusalem into humiliation, rejection, and affliction. Jesus Christ patiently waited on God the Father to vindicate him before the eyes of the world. He humbled himself, submitted to the humiliation of the cross, setting aside all claims to a throne that was rightfully his. Winning the hearts of men and women, not by flattering words, not by false kisses, but by shedding the blood of his own heart for his brothers and sisters. This is the Jesus who suffered outside the gate and calls to you. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And then he continues, beware. Beware of the false prophets. Beware of the enemy at the gates. Beware the worldly wise man. Beware the Absaloms. Most of all, beware the sinful man who is crouching at the door to your heart. Who would have you turn aside to another kingdom? Brothers and sisters, this morning I pray today and forevermore that in your hearts you will honor Christ Jesus as Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that by your patience and your humility you have rightfully gained the throne in our hearts and over all this universe. I pray, Lord Jesus, that there, if there is anyone here who has been swindled by the powers of darkness, that they would turn to Jesus. Lord Jesus, that you would give them a new heart, one that's able to love God and their neighbor. I pray for these children that are here that hear the gospel week in and week out, Lord. I pray that they would have the courage to take up their cross, to follow Jesus to walk through the waters of baptism and to find newness of life on the other side.
pray all these things, trusting in Jesus' name. Amen.